everyone. Welcome to How We Work. This is a podcast from Work Human about the trends, relationships, and experiences that shape the human workplace both now and into the future. My name is Stacy Thompson, and I'm the Senior Director of Content Strategy and Activation here at Work Human. So today we're talking about the hashtag future work. It's a topic on everyone's minds as nearly everything about the way we work has changed over the past few years. It's also a topic we talk about constantly within the Work Human community, including and especially here at Work Human Live, and continue to evolve our thinking as we look to build a more human workplace for all. We've got with us today a very special guest, the one, the only Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm, welcome. Thank you. We all know you as New York Times bestselling author, one of foreign policy's top global thinkers, active podcaster, the list goes on and on. But I'd love to start out by getting to know the human that is Malcolm Gladwell. All right. So if you don't mind, tell us something fun, interesting, or weird about yourself. In other words, what makes you human? Oh, well, what am I? I'm a car nut. I have uh, too many cars, and I turn them over too much, constantly selling and buying them. Spend way too much time on car websites. I am also a massive track and field fan, a runner. I read thrillers endlessly. Those are my probably my kind of quirkiest interests. Love it. <laughs> I did know you were a runner. Didn't know you were a car fanatic. How I many am. cars do you have? Well, at the moment, I have four. It's complicated. <laughs> There's all, there was always in a state of flux, but I have four at the moment, which is embarrassing because I don't really need four, but I, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> do you drive them all? I do. When I, well, they're not fancy cars. I don't actually like fancy cars, but I drive... I have one, like, nice car, which is in storage, which I drive very rarely. It's 2003 BMW M5. Low mileage, gorgeous car. The others I drive, I, I rotate among them. Rotate them in and out. All right, let's dig into the future work topic. It's a pretty meaty one. So the more I think about the future of work, the more I think about this idea that we're living history on the heels of an unprecedented global pandemic. We're in a place now that's far from where we were years ago. We're making this up as we go, so to speak, charting a new path for ourselves. So what does living history mean to you, Malcolm? Living, what does that phrase mean to me? Or? What does it mean to you in the context of where we are right now in a post-pandemic yeah. world? You know, this is sort of what we were expecting all along, right? I mean, the upside to living in the 21st century is that more good things happen faster than we would ever have anticipated. The downside is that more bad things happen <laughs> faster than we'd ever anticipated. Everything's just kind of sped up, yeah. right? And the question is, do the... Will the good things outpace the bad things? I kind of think the good things do outpace the bad things. But yes, we just went through a pandemic, but we also developed vaccines and drugs for that virus faster than we've ever created drugs and vaccines in history. So like, you can look at this as a glass half full thing. What we have demonstrated is the extraordinary power of science and technology to address sudden and unexpected crises. Very good point. 
What do you predict that history books will write about this post-pandemic period? Well, I think that the generational fissures are really interesting, and I think that will be something that may well stand out to people down the line. The kind of strange position that people in their 20s are in at the moment, and this, the kind of, there was a set of certainties about about what it meant to join the workforce as recently as five years ago. You know, you were certainly 10 years ago, graduated from college and you went somewhere and you kind of learned your trade. You were ushered into an organization which helped you develop your abilities, hopefully, in the best case scenario. Now everything, that the kind of that pathway has been disrupted. I mean, it's if you join an organization, first of all, the nature of the organization you join is very different these days. You might be far more likely to join a company that didn't exist five or 10 years ago, a company with no history, a company that's making up its culture as it goes along. You know, that's new. You might not go to a place, physical place. In fact, that's another, you know, obvious generational fissure. I feel like a lot of younger generation does not want to go to the office. So there's all these kinds of, and your willingness to be Certainly in certain sectors, there's a lot of mobility. I don't have any data, but I would say my gut is that among in certain industries, there's far more mobility than there was a generation ago. That's new. So those are all kinds of just the experience of becoming an adult in the workplace. It's just that story is different today. I think there's also a sense of power within the control of the employee in a way that there wasn't before with things like the great resignation and it's no longer you know you get out of college and you spend your entire career in one place and that's a big shift too from previous generations that I think is a real turning point for us in terms of the workforce yeah yeah there I had a really interesting conversation with somebody uh, in the kind of, in this world, who um, was talking about how with online, the real change that's brought by online hiring and the rise of these is the nationalization of the labor market. That we thought we had a national labor market before, but in truth, it was very specific to certain kind of industries. But most companies hired most of their key workers relatively locally. And that's what's changed. Now it's almost as easy, assuming you can deal with the immigration stuff, you can have international labor markets for certain industries. And that's a kind of, if I had to list all of the changes in the workplace according to their long-term importance, the real nationalization of the hiring marketplace would be at the top. I think it's a very, very big deal. Yeah, it is because it's now abnormal to all be in the same place in the same office it's it's a completely different way of hiring and thinking about the workforce it's just completely changed almost overnight yeah and the kind of the nationalization of the workplace also although of the labor market also the location is sort of an issue now in a way that it wasn't in the past i mean in a positive way that if you're Procter & Gamble and you're in Cincinnati, you have an opportunity now to talk about Cincinnati to people who aren't from Cincinnati, right? Who aren't just from Ohio, and aren't just from... I'm very curious to see how individual communities, cities respond to the, to the nationalization of the hiring workforce. And lots of people making decisions, not just 
based on the company they want to work for, but the place they want to live. Yeah. Just another example of the power shift in terms of employees. Yeah. You said before that radical and transformative thought goes nowhere without the willingness to challenge convention. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty powerful statement. Certainly, we've challenged convention over the past few years with things like flexible working models. But what other conventions do we need to challenge when we think about the future of work? What rules do we need to break, so to speak? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I have many thoughts on that question. But one of them is that if we take seriously the notion that the pace of technological change is only going to accelerate, then... You have to think of your workforce in a different way, that the amount of kind of flexibility and expertise that you need in your workforce is going to be a lot greater. Now, when I hire somebody, I may not know what job they're going to be filling five years from now, right? I mean, I I may not know how my particular industry is going to, or marketplace is going to evolve. I may not know the kinds of technologies that are, I mean, think about it. Here's a trite example would be, you could have been hired by Netflix in 1995, and you thought they were in the business of shipping DVDs to the mail, right? That's so funny to think back to that, that, receiving the DVDs in the mail. And then 10 years later, you're in a high-dollar international content creation enterprise. That's a kind of, what a shift. But there are sort of versions of that that are going on in, or think about working for a pharmaceutical company You could have started at a pharmaceutical company in an era where developing a new vaccine was a project that took a decade. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in an era where a new vaccine is a project that takes six months or eight months. That's more than just things being sped up. Every single process around the manufacturer and creation and testing of that vaccine has to change if your time horizon shrinks by that much. So it's that kind of thing. It's like, So when I hire someone, I'm now thinking, I need someone who can adapt. I'm not really judging them necessarily just on what I'm hiring them for. I'm thinking about, is this the kind of person who can roll with the punches? It ties back to what you were just talking about in your keynote with how we need to rethink about how we define talent and Mm -hmm. think more about the potential of someone If you're thinking about not what role am I hiring this person for now, but what role will they have five years from now? It's really that shift in mentality. Yeah. We have a really interesting version of this problem at my, um, I started an audio company a couple of years ago called Pushkin, and we make podcasts and audiobooks. And there's a really interesting phenomenon in that world, in the kind of literary content creation world, which is... Your ability to critique a work of writing or audio comes first. Your ability to be able to make it yourself comes much later. So in other words, you can be a critic long before you can be a creator. So we hire people, producers are essentially on some levels, they're critics. So they're people who have taste and judgment, and we ask them to play those roles. But what we really want them to do, we're trying to find those rare people down the line who are capable of making something original. That's way more valuable to us. But that skill is not present at the time we... When I hire someone at 25, it's not there yet. It's going to take years to develop it. So I'm playing this game where I'm hiring them for their 
ability to have taste and be a critic and a producer and an editor. And I'm guessing <laughs> whether I can create an environment that allows them to develop this much more valuable skill over the longer term. And if you fail to get that right in my business, you're in trouble. If you can't grow your own content creation talent internally, you have an issue. Yeah, I think it speaks to the idea of hiring the individual too. When you think about the potential of someone five, 10 years down the line, that's a spark that you see that isn't there yet, but that you could see foster and grow. And it's an important distinction. Yeah, I think it's absolutely right. You've said in your podcast, revisionist history is all about experiments that have changed our world. What experiment are you trying out in Revisionist History Live next month? We've never done a live show before. So that's experiment number one is what we do in podcasting. Some podcasts are just like this. They're conversations. We could have done this in front of an audience, right? My kind of podcast is not that way. It's a scripted, narrated thing. We spend months producing 40 minutes of Revisionist History. It takes weeks and many people have to get involved. So... To take that and to put it on stage and do it live is experiment number one. Can I reproduce some of the magic of revisionist history without the benefit of all of that preparation and scripting? Then what follows from that is, is there an audience for that? So I developed an audience that wants to both to listen to that highly produced thing and to do it on their own time, right? Now I'm asking them to come to a place and treat me as if I'm a performer, Will they do that? I don't know. And so all kinds of questions. Is it, think about this as a business, is this a real economic thing? Can we make enough money from tickets to make it worth our while as a company to do this? We don't know that. So we, there's all kinds of ways in which we're kind of rolling the dice here. Is it a good way to market a podcast? Will the people who show up be people who've never listened to the show, in which case we're reaching new audience, or we're just preaching to the choir? Is this a way of rewarding loyal listeners? We don't know. So it's like, it's just a chance to learn lots of things that are necessary for growing the business. Yeah. In that vein, what are some of the experiments that we've been afraid to try in the workplace that we need to be thinking about when we think about the future of work? I mean, one is, you know, I mean, this is an obvious one, but how many chances do you give someone to get better? In the keynote I gave today, I was talking a lot about the problem that's created by the fact that people mature at different rates. And the fact that you can have two 12-year-olds and one can be effectively 13 and one can effectively be 11 just because of the random way in which human beings mature. And that means that you can't evaluate one of those kids the same way you evaluate the other one, right? You have to be kind of... And one kid requires patience and the other kid doesn't. Now, that works in the workplace as well. Some people can blossom right away. Some people need a longer runway. And some people will never blossom, right? Those are three states. And distinguishing between the first of those states and the other two is quite easy. You can tell who gets it right away. But it's really hard to distinguish between the person who just needs more time and the person who will never get it. And I think about that all the time. Like in my little team of people who work on my podcast, we have all kinds. I have a guy, he was just a star from the minute he stepped in the door. I have someone else who took about a year and a half and they've really started to blossom. But had I been impatient, I would have missed that or too quick to kind of pull the trigger. There are other people who may even take longer than that. It's not a bad thing to take a while to figure. And very often, sometimes as well, 
the people who take longer to master something end up being your best because they're just going through a much more thoughtful process of learning, right? They're tackling hard questions in their mind and or maybe their problem is just a lack of confidence. I mean, there's all kinds of these sort of variables. And that's, as someone who didn't used to manage people, and now I am, that's, to my mind, the thing that I want to experiment more with is what happens if we give people a longer runway. I think what you're talking about is the idea of thinking about the employee as the individual and not everyone learns or grows at the same rate, nor should they, but there needs to be more of an emphasis on that as we yeah. think about the future of work. It's The workforce is made up of all different types of people, and we can't box ourselves into thinking about one way of what makes good or bad talent. It's, yeah. it's different depending on the individual. So I'll give you an example of how this experimentation plays out. And one of the most important things we do with the podcast is the table read. So I'll write a draft. And then we sit down and I'll read through the script and we'll play the tape and we'll see if it works. It's the first time usually that I've heard the tape and the writing together and that any of us have heard the tape and the writing together. And then we have a conversation and that's our opportunity to make it better. And I notice that some people never say anything during a table read, which bothers me because I know they have reactions. So I've started to experiment with, now I have two table reads and the first one is much smaller and has just my most junior people and maybe one experienced person. But a normal table read might be 12 people. Now I have them. The first one is three. And what I've discovered is that I get way more out of my younger employees in a small preliminary table read. And it's just about what I thought was they didn't have anything to say or they weren't smart enough or they were It was none of those things. It was just that they were shy, essentially, a version of shy, and didn't feel comfortable speaking in a group of a lot of people who were a lot more experienced than they were. All I had to do was to change the environment. Yeah. And now I get this incredible level of feedback in that early stage. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think it corresponds to how we're thinking about education as well. It's no longer all students learn the same way. There are different ways of learning. And I, I think it's a good point you made about sometimes it's about changing the environment and you can get completely different results depending on changing that one environment. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. In your book, Blink, you describe the idea of thin slicing, making a reasonably accurate assessment of a person or a situation based off just a few seconds. How does this concept help or perhaps hinder our ability to collaborate in the workplace? I think it largely hinders. The point in Blink was that not necessarily that we're good at that, but that we do it. <laughs> now, some of those impressions, there are certain kinds of things that are, you can make a relatively accurate assessment of whether someone is friendly or happy or attractive or charismatic very, very quickly. But big deal. <laughs> the things that really matter, is this person a thoughtful, caring, conscientious person? Do they know what they're talking about? Are they trustworthy? Those kinds of things you can't. And whatever flash judgment you make, snap judgment you make about someone along those dimensions is not is unlikely to be accurate. You can't tell what someone's thinking in an instant. All kinds of studies have showed that even with people we love, we're terrible at guessing what's going on in their mind at any given moment. So I would say that that tendency of ours 
to over-rely on snap judgments outside of the areas where snap judgments are useful is a problem. And the workplace cannot proceed well and happily when people are collaboration and things, when people are relying on those sorts of blink moments. How do we overcome that? Or maybe we can't. It's just, just be aware of, of how yeah. potentially problematic those kinds of judgments are. And again, give people time to get to know each other properly. Just that idea of like, it goes back to that early notion I had of some people need a long runway. Well, there are cases where we all need a long runway. We should teach each other to suspend judgment about others until we have a more considerable body of evidence to make a decision. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful thought, teaching people to suspend judgment. And I think you're right that it starts with awareness that we're doing it. Yeah. Malcolm, switching gears completely, you and I are both runners. You run a five-minute, 15-second mile, and I run a 10-minute mile. <laughs> But I often find that I do my best thinking while running. Yeah. I have read that you have said that running helps keep you sane. So any epiphanies about the future of work while you run? Well, the obvious one is the importance of giving people time for reflection. To my mind, the value of running apart from its physical benefits is it's a chance to be alone with your own thoughts. And it's very hard to find time to be alone with your own thoughts And I don't know whether, I think we have come to undervalue those kinds of protected times and spaces in people's lives that building a highly collaborative, functional workplace also requires giving people alone time, protected alone time. My friend Adam Grant has all of these notions about the value of meeting-free days or email-free days, or I think that's so super important that if we're going to ask people to do complicated, highly creative work, you've got to create a space where you give people the time to work through creative, complicated thoughts. And you can't do that when you're stuck in a meeting all day. No, you cannot. Wonderful. Well, it was lovely having you on our podcast, Malcolm. Thank, Thank you, so you so much, much for being here with us today and being part of the Work Human Live community. It's been my pleasure.